This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 154 of the Healthy Creatures Radio, brought to you by Biostar US. Find them online at biostarus.com. On today's show, we speak with rangeland and forest management expert Matt Dressel. And in Critter Nutrition, we focus on the GI tract. Listen in. Hi, I'm Tigger. I'm Patty. And today we have Coach Amber, um, who is our producer. So um, we're we're here at the bi-monthly Healthy Critters Circus of Insanity. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because Patty and I are in Wellington in the last gasps of the of the season. Yeah, and um, it's. If you've never spent the winter in Wellington, Florida, um, we'll try to give you a brief view from the palms. I'm just going to start off by this. I'm just grateful I'm upright and not wearing a diaper. (laughs) 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 Having said that, (laughs) it is a very incredibly wonderful experience. Just gets tiring. Then, you know, you just yearn for home. It's, um, the days are long and they start early. They start it's early. They, they go long and every day is Groundhog Day. Yeah. And there's, yeah. And, but I will tell you, it's been a lot of fun for me because I've had a lot of new people that come this year and I love seeing people like what they what they like to experience like that has been refreshing uh, I just had a group switch out from two weeks ago come in, a new group come in and it's so much fun to see them kind of their eyes real big and they just went to you know they've been to global a couple times they went to Dakota last week they love that um, where um, you know it's just the whole thing is fascinating seeing all the new stuff but it gets tiring doesn't it Tig? Well, CODA, which everybody is the challenge of the Americas, it's a Mm -hmm. it's the big fundraising effort by the dressage community. Uh, It's once a year. It's in Wellington and we raise money for breast cancer research. Uh, This was the biggest uh, attendance ever in the history of the challenge of the Americas. Um, and it, it, the centerpiece is uh, Grand Prix quadrilles of six horses each. We had five teams competing this year. And, it, you know, when you think about it, that's 30 Grand Prix horses just to mm-hmm. make five quadrilles. And yeah. in most places in the country, you know, you're lucky to have three Grand Prix horses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty amazing to be in this one place and, all of the U.S. where you have 30 Grand Prix horses, not counting the ones that compete in the two-star and the three-star and the four-star mm-hmm. events. So um, the standard is is high, and um, it's it's so cool when the community, meaning the dressage community, all turns out together 
for one really important cause because we've all been affected one way or the other um, by a sister or a mother or a friend or a wife or a daughter that has battled breast cancer. So it's an amazing cause. It's it's an amazing cause. And, you know, having J.J. Tate um, on my team Mm-hmm. was in, especially inspiring to me. Of course it was, yeah. Because her story is so raw and so honest. And when she told the team in the for our first meeting um, about her journey and how breast cancer research really saved her because five years ago they didn't have as much knowledge about the particular kind of gene that she has. Mm. And it's all come from funding breast cancer research. That's amazing. It's amazing. So, and I'm proud to say that Biostar won the quadrille competition. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot that goes into that because you, you have, for how many weeks have been getting together and um, having these people practice? How many weeks? Every Tuesday been? since the beginning of January. I thought you were going to say since the beginning of time. <laughs> it feel, feels like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's just selfless, uh, you know, people caring, people going out there and doing that for a greater cause. So it was, it, you know, of course, we're incredibly proud of you too. We're proud of all the people that showed up in the teams. But that's just one of the great, great benefits of being in Wellington. Yeah. But, you know, you also, on top of doing that, have been running around doing a few other things <laughs> yeah just a little <laughs> but then you know you're you're on the the trainer teacher side and mm-hmm. you know every trainer teacher i know in wellington right now is thinking about when they're going to get a vacation <laughs> because, mm-hmm. yeah. um you know the show schedule's intense and you know, people who come down here to get more lessons and mm-hmm. and learn by going to shows and, and just watching the warm up or mm-hmm. moving up a level, um, it, it's it's a lot of of stress. And you and and you as coaches and trainers and teachers want your students to get the most out of the experience and their horses to improve and. And and so it's Wellington is like this big giant pressure cooker, yeah. Um, in some ways, and um, now that we're basically at the end of season, there's the big there's a Nations Cup on the dressage side this coming weekend. Um, it everybody's kind of feeling the okay. It's time. It's time to pack and, up and go home. <laughs> yeah, we're in the home. Stretch. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But one of the things that's interesting about about Wellington is that there are some uh, conservation and watershed areas. I, I've mm-hmm. been to one of them um, that's south, more towards Del Rey, and um, I, I've spent a lot of time there with the seabirds. There's a great big alligator there. Um, and it, they explain in this huge graph that's permanently displayed about how the wetlands work, um, mm. this kind of wetland. And we have an expert on uh, range and forestry coming up that 
if, if you're interested in the planet welfare and ecology, you're going to love Matt. So yeah. let's get him on. Great. Let's get started. So we are with a good friend of mine, Matt Dreschel. He was a former resource conservationist, um, and I had sat down and talked to him um, about the eagles in a, a, a critters episode before this, and we had just had an interesting discussion about um, the management of habitat and how it manage it, the management of species and how that all works. And we had um, been uh, basically just a great conversation. So welcome to the show, Matt. We're going to just sort of pick your brain about um, how this all works. But we had initially talked about um, uh, just how changes in irrigation can affect um, affect a species and how you manage that. So can we kind of like pick up with that conversation we had a couple weeks ago and just kind of talk about that and how that affects species? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. Um, yeah, a, a good example uh, of being able to go in and manage habitat um, really focuses back on not being able to manage on an individual species level. And that's where our conversation about the eagles started. I know um, eagles, especially brood pairs, um, mating pairs in Florida are, are critical um, to the survival and habitat, but you cannot just manage for an individual species because they're all linked. And and the irrigation that you're talking about, uh, I've been able to work with agriculture and wildlife uh, really all over the country. One of the experiences I had was back in 2001, there was an irrigation shortage, a water shortage in the Klamath Basin, <clears throat> which led to irrigation shutoff. The, the outcome of that really is with the irrigation not being able to work on the potatoes and, and the crops and, uh, you know, like hay in that area was that there wasn't really any food for the ducks. And so the ducks got up and left, and they actually stopped that area. It was a resting area for the Pacific Flyway. And so the the ducks actually moved. They changed their travel pattern to um, more net um, resting in the Sacramento Valley. Uh, the issue around it wasn't just the ducks, but things like big eagles, you know, bald eagles, the golden eagles, uh, which are protected under the Bald and Golden Eagle Act, um, got up and moved with them because it's a huge food source. So by adjusting the water for, in this case, it was the benefit of fish, um, really negative impacted the ducks, which in, in then it impacted the travel patterns and the hunting patterns of the eagles. So managing for an individual species really doesn't happen. It's always got impacts on everything else around it, whether it be, you know, birds, you know, large mammals, ungulates, or even people. It's amazing how that all um, how that all affects um, one another. We had, we had also we were talking about um, where we're at this beautiful farm that's called Eagle Tree, hence the whole interest in the eagles. And um, I do have one question that I didn't ask you be- before: Are eagles do they mate for life? Yeah, you you will get a mating pair, and they do tend to stay stay together. You know, unfortunately, things happen. Um, you know, whether it be natural or unnatural, um, but they, they do tend to, to stick together for life. Yes. Um, tree, they come back every year, very habitual. Um, and that's why, you know, when you talk about the Eagle tree farm, you know, that, that nest that was on that place, 
you know, was going to be there as long as something catastrophic didn't happen. Absolutely. So then it had to change its pattern. Right. Right. Okay. Well, and so we were also talking about how all these farms up in this particular area, how they built up and how it's moving them out and out. And then we talked, you talked a little bit about the fishbowl effect and, and it didn't, it just blew me away because you were talking about how, you know, a fishbowl effect, how they're having a smorgasbord of what they can prey on, but then how it even affects the, the grasses and other types of um, wildlife and animal life. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. That That's where the, the people influence comes in. You know, wildlife tend to travel, you know, both, you know, from nesting, from breeding, you know, from from hunting, you know, whatever it is they may be doing, they have different locations that they do that in. They they travel from place to place. When these developments come in, it really takes away some of their the, the habitat that they do use. And so, you know, when you start putting you know, houses on the dry spots in South Florida, you know, that would be typically where you'd find, you know, your rabbits, your mice, your your small mammals that the eagles, you know, are going to, among other things, are going to be preying on. And if those houses uh, move on, those prey get pushed into smaller and smaller areas, which makes the concentration of things like rabbits and eagles, you know, really focused Then the population of the, that prey you know, and the food that they feed on goes away because you're taking, you know, the opportunity for for nesting for small rodents for the feed that they use, and you're you're com- you're you're really focusing it down to smaller areas, which changes those patterns. Now, you know, a, a good a good example in that area that that you've got right now, I had the opportunity to travel out and and hike around Green Cay, um, where they've recreated some of the, the different types of habitat around the wetland area, both for the, for the sake of water quality in the area, as well as an educational demonstration site. So you've got deep water, you've got you know shallow water, you've got grasslands, um, all in a small area. And so one of the, the, the things, you know, when I walk through it where you notice is that the, rap, the raptors don't have to travel anywhere. They get to sit in one tree and, and, and be able to see all the different kinds of prey in one place cool opportunity to see that that in action where typically they would have gone out um, onto where the different farms would be and now it's, it's really concentrated so those prey populations are lower which leads to predator populations being lower and they they really focus on the kind of this wave pattern of reproduction versus hunting between the, the predator prey relationship so it's it shortens it up and it really focuses it into a small area a fishbowl where you can you can watch mm-hmm. those things but also focuses it down so those those animals aren't traveling like they used to and the populations are smaller well and i'm sure that that's when you start to see all the decreases and in, increases in different species which is kind of amazing to me where was it that you said that you um that you that you saw this what was it called it's it's green K. There's a an educational park right there um, outside of of well it's it's not but what 15 20 minutes away from Eagle Tree Farm. There's a okay a, yeah it's a just a local local park that was built from a, a restoration of wetland habitat educational standpoint. It's a neat local place where you can go walk the trails and oh. and see the ducks and the fish and the raptors all kind of pushed into one small area. That's pretty amazing. Well, it is um, so incredibly interesting how one thing affects the other and how this, even just this whole thing came about just being interested in hearing about all this. But 
just um, uh, just how one species affects another species and how we have to do our part in trying to make sure that we don't keep ruining it, ruining it all for them. Um, well, um, and can I yeah, just say you. that it trickles down to farming, you know, when you think mm-hmm. about what you're going to put on grassland. It really does. And, and that's where so much of my background, you know, my my educational and work background is from an agricultural standpoint. I've worked um, big cattle operations, row crops, forestry, gone to school for all of that, but also in the in the midst of all that, the wildlife. And one of the things that most most folks don't realize is sustainability of our agriculture and forest ecosystems really works hand in hand with the wildlife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to work on a, a, a big 11 state sage grouse initiative um, a few oh, wow. years ago where the, the, the whole mantra uh, of, of the initiative and millions of dollars going into restoration of rangeland, but um, it, it was uh, the cows and the sage grouse working together. And when you look at the management of our natural resources, our, uh, both from a cropping standpoint and from a livestock standpoint when managed properly they're beneficial to both because the mm-hmm. wildlife mm-hmm. the land that the agriculture may not be able to and vice versa so you can actually manage those habitats very very successfully with agriculture you know our our country has gotten to the point where everything is fairly highly managed and if we if we take a hands-off approach those things really come apart you know mother nature isn't set up to take care of itself in a lot of cases anymore so being able to manage those things in cooperation with with agriculture is one of the best tools we have, and we've been able to see, uh, well, the bald and golden eagle. They they came off the mm-hmm. endangered species list. They're still protected. Sage grouse actually came off off of the uh, list. It was going to be listed, and it was de- it was downgraded. So so agriculture is really a, a good tool when done right. Agriculture is a phenomenal tool for helping wildlife move forward, and that's how I got into it. You know, from an agriculture and uh, an economics perspective of moving forward, um, was that if your wildlife is healthy, that means your crops and your and your cows are healthy as well. Wow. You know, I got I was very fortunate to be able to spend um, some time in Alaska, and I the thing that I think about all the time when I think about the environment at large is the impact of the eagle eating the fish and then the fish droppings going to the soil, which nurtures the trees and the grasses and and the bears. And, and the cycle is so, it's so in your face in Alaska. It, it you like, you just can't, you can't really miss it. Um is and I'm an I'm an avid sportsman as well, and I I've gotten to spend my time in Alaska and love it, um, Southwest Montana as well. Um, but you can find the same thing in the Sierras of California, and yeah, uh, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> my my dad, um, we lived in Southwest Montana for 30 years. Um, he was part of the group that got the wolves introduced to Yellowstone. Okay, well, I think that. Wow. Yeah, uh, I actually worked with the the federal agencies in that area and was on a cooperative group for weeds and wildlife management that covered Yellowstone National Park in Gallatin County, Montana. Well, we lived in Gallatin County. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It's a small world. It is. It is. Well, this has just been fascinating. Tigger, I knew you'd enjoy it. <laughs> oh, this uh, is just right up my alley. I could talk about this all night. Yes, I know. <laughs> but we have to get to Hedwig. So. Okay. Well, yes, Matt, but I want to ask one little question. What can okay. the average homeowner do, oh, Matt, in, in your opinion, to um, make our backyards our farms um, more ecologically balanced? Uh, that, that, that's easy. You know, we, we have a, a small farm here um, in North Texas and something we do all the time. You know, we, we uh, use our, our ground. We, we have a garden, but in the garden we mix in, you know, different pollinator species. Um, mm-hmm. We grow, you know, u- utilizing what's around us on, the, on our own place. Um, making sure that our cactuses, prickly pear, stay healthy. We harvest, we replant. Um, so in your in your own home home location, whether it be you know a lot in town or or, or a large ranch, you know, um, being able to start small and look at the the small things that you can do, and those smallest things actually anymore a lot of focus on pollinators. They keep our uh, forages you know healthy. They keep our flowers healthy. They provide food you know, to our next, you know, the next level up when we start getting to our songbirds and our migratory. Um, so, so plant, plant a little pollinator garden, do your own gardening. My gosh, you know, bring in, bring in all the wildlife around. <laughs> and, and, and don't use a lot of chemicals. That's no, <laughs> we, we don't use uh, chemicals on our place. Um, we, use animal we don't either. To graze the weeds off. Um, the timing of those things is important. Mulching over the top, even if it's something as simple as solarizing your weeds. If you go into the garden, uh, instead of tilling it, you know, you can put plastic over the top, kill the weeds, then it becomes green mulch. So yep. uh, we do not apply chemicals to our place. We don't either. That's cool. Well, so, I feel like you guys could talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we could. <laughs> I knew you would love them. Some some of the biggest pollution we see doesn't come from big agricultural operations. It comes from the the uh, amount of chemicals that come off, you know, city yards. Lawns. Yep. <laughs> lawns yeah, and golf courses. I'm for all for no lawns. Just grow gardens and pollinator bushes, and you know, forget the green lawn. That's yep. That's it. Uses water and and petroleum product chemicals typically. Yeah. Exactly. So. We're on the same page, Matt. I'm in. The, I'm okay. in your tribe. It's always good to meet another. Hello, Hetty. Hi, Hetty. Everyone. Hello. How are hello, you? Hello. Hey, we have, a, we have a new producer today. Say, say hello to Amber. Hello, Amber. Hey, Hetty. I just want you to know I love Pomeranians, and this is amazing. <laughs> Amber <laughs> shot to the top of my list of people. Yes. <laughs> now tell me, are you are you a big fluffy Pomeranian, or do you have like a little puppy cut going on? Oh no, I have my perfect suit. 
Okay. And fronds, my ear fronds go for about four inches right now. Whoa. I love that. I sound like a classy gal. Fronds. Ooh. I do. I look like an owl. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a very, very attractive owl without wings because I don't have wings or to clarify, am I a monkey? <laughs> Got I'm it. not a monkey. <laughs> That's I'm visualizing it. <laughs> um. So, Hetty, we have been talking to a conservationist in uh, forestry and uh, rangelands. And so we wanted to know what your tips are for conservation for Pomeranians. <laughs> for conserving the Pomeranian breed or con- Pomeranians who already exist. I mean, there's so many aspects to this. Or do you mean... Pick- how Pomeranians can contribute to the ongoing land conservation efforts. Uh, I pick Which I, one? T- take your pick. Well, so let me just begin at the beginning. Obviously, Pomeranians are an important contribution to biological diversity due to the fact that we are descended from the Spitzhund, which is a German herding dog. People often think that Pomeranians do not have jobs, that we are, quote, toy dogs, those people should be killed. (laughs) The AKC may have categorized us as toy dogs, but the AKC is obviously unaware of our extraordinary talent as organizers of herds. Hmm. I organize my herd. So it is critically important that we conserve this breed and really everything available in our ongoing commitment to biodiversity. Now, moving on to the idea of conservation of available lands and species, it is, of course, crucial that we keep open land because where else would I run on my paws? I do not like cities. In fact, I do not see a purpose for them, really. And so it is critically important that we maintain, say, one to 2,000 acres per Pomeranian in order for paw running space. One to two thousand acres. Okay, got gotcha. Per Pomeranian. Per Pomeranian. So just in this home, eight thousand acres. Okay. Well, of yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and another way to consider this is really the two hundred and fifty uh, to five hundred acre per paw per Pomeranian rule. Ah, got it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Critically important to recall. So if you think about say, a Pomeranian rescue, which just rescued 21 Pomeranians from a puppy mill. Think of how many acres right there must be put into conservation right now. (laughs) Okay. Really, the state of Texas is gone. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. Wyoming is mine. I claim it. It's it it it's so interesting because you're so small. And you only weigh like seven pounds. Why you would need all that space? Do I look to you like an animal who needs to share? <laughs> ah, good point. Excellent point. Also, I like to run and then have a nap, and I don't like my naps to be disturbed. And I want there to be many other species on the land. It's not just for me. There okay, can be that's bears good. and. Um, other dogs, sort of, and cats are okay, and horses, I suppose, if we need them, and um, monkeys, but I am not a monkey. And birds of all types are fine, and orca is fine if there's water available. I'm really not 
needing it just for myself. This is just a measuring device. Gotcha. Gotcha. I would like to have bears on mine. Well, Hetty, once again, you have enlivened us and enriched us with your presence and your observations. So I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> I know you are. And and I know at heart you are a true conservationist. I am. Right. I want there to be, I do want there to be land, open land. It's important. No yes. cities burn them down. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. All right, you know, Hattie, take horrible. care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Nice to meet you, Amber. <laughs> And today in Critter Nutrition, um, we're going to uh, focus on the horse is a GI tract on four legs. Recently, I read an article on a presentation about gastric ulcers in horses given at the Association of Equine Practitioners, that's the AAEP convention held in December 2021 in Nashville. Frank Andrews department head at Louisiana State University's School of Veterinary Medicine in Baton Rouge, presented his assessments of the role gastric ulcers play in poor performance in horses. Quote, as far as I'm concerned, the horse is basically a GI tract on four legs, Dr. Andrews stated. They are hindgut fermenters meant to be out on pasture grazing continuously. We've taken them out of that environment, end quote. Dr. Andrews also pointed out that the prevalence of gastric ulcers, both in the non-glandular and glandular mucosa, is very high, from 40% to 93% in performance horses. As many of you know, I'm a bit obsessed with the GI tract of horses. From Biostar's range of probiotics to our range of ulcer support supplements, Biostar is a gut-focused company. So when an esteemed veterinarian like Frank Andrews describes a horse as a GI tract on four legs, I couldn't agree more because the seat of health in horses resides in the GI tract. Dr. Andrews pointed out studies that show that during exercise, horses can experience the equivalent to gastroesophageal reflux. That's heartburn in humans. When acid splashes onto the non-glandular mucosal lining in the upper third portion of the stomach. A study which looked at this reflux in yearlings concluded that omeprazole, as in gastroguard or ulcerguard, had no detectable effect on gastroesophageal reflux. Saliva is one of the best buffers of stomach acid. Chewing and swallowing activates saliva production. Alfalfa hay or alfalfa pellets can provide better buffering action than grass hays due to the high calcium content of alfalfa. It can be beneficial to feed some alfalfa hay or alfalfa pellets an hour before exercise. You can also feed a cookie supplement like Biostar's tummies, which will coat the GI tract and provide stomach acid buffering. Horses that graze continuously throughout the day tend to have better protection against ulcers. Management tip from Dr. Andrews, fat. 
Dr. Andrews recommends adding oil to feed. He recommends a top-dressed corn oil, which would not be my first choice due to the high omega-6 content and have a heavy processing of corn oil. The reason for adding oil is that fats may slow the food transit time out of the stomach. I recommend cold-pressed oils such as camelina or flax. There are also benefits to hemp seed oil due to the high GLA content of this oil. GLA is important in the regulation of pro-inflammatory prostaglandins. Another fat to consider is lecithin. Lecithin is a phospholipid that can create a barrier against stomach acid and stabilize the cell membranes of the cells that line the horse's stomach. Management tip from Dr. Andrews, chelated zinc. According to Dr. Andrews, quote, if you're going to use a grain, use one that has a chelated mineral such as zinc or copper. We've shown that the chelated zinc is better absorbed and has an effect on inhibiting or decreasing gastric ulcer scores in horses, end quote. I couldn't agree more with Dr. Andrews. Chelated minerals have higher bioavailability than non-chelated minerals. So what is a chelated mineral? A chelated mineral is a mineral bound to an organic molecule, such as amino acids. Plants use chelation to bind minerals from the soil and make them more bioavailable to the plant. But not all chelated minerals are the same. Mineral gluconates, such as zinc gluconate, have a 10 to 40% bioavailability, while amino acid chelates, proteinates, and polysaccharide chelates provide a 50 to 70% bioavailability. Differences among chelates. Mineral proteinates and amino acid chelates are very similar, but the labeling definition of chelates is different for humans and horses. In animal nutrition labeling, an amino acid chelate mineral has two bonds, and a mineral proteinate has eight bonds. Two bonds may be weakened and separated by the acid in the stomach, so the more bonds around the mineral, the better the absorption. So when reading labels for your horse, look for protonated minerals because it has more bonds. In human nutrition labeling, an amino acid chelated mineral has eight bonds and a mineral protonate has two bonds, the exact opposite of animal nutrition labeling. When reading labels for yourself and your family, look for amino acid chelated minerals. As long as ago as 1995, researchers began looking at zinc deficiency on gastric ulcer healing in rats. While the study showed that zinc deficiency did not affect the formation of ulcers, it did reduce cell proliferation and delayed ulcer healing. Zinc has long been associated with wound healing. Considering that an ulcer is a type of wound of the mucosa, it is sensible to make sure your horse is getting enough bioavailable zinc. If you are feeding Biostars Optimum 2.0, Optimum Senior, Optimum JS, Optimum Defense, or Optimum GI, your horse is getting the most bioavailable zinc in the form of protonate. 
Preventing ulcers and managing ulcer horses and ulcer-sensitive horses takes a multi-pronged approach. Lifestyle, diet, supplements, stress assessment, and meds is needed. Some ways to help prevent and manage gastric ulcers. Adding a healthy oil to the feed. Giving the horse more grazing pasture time. Ensuring zinc levels are not deficient. Making sure the horse gets a buffering agent like alfalfa hay or pellets before riding. We cannot underestimate the complex role of the GI tract in the health of our horses. Fortunately, we horse owners have access to a variety of methods and ways to keep the equine gut happy and healthy. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to our sponsor, Biostar US. You can find them online at biostarus.com. Get the Horse Radio Network phone app on iOS or Android by searching for Horse Radio Network in the App Store. It's free and easy to use. For details about today's show, go to HealthyCrittersRadio.com where you can find links, photos, and more information about our guests. As always, we love your feedback. Please follow us on Facebook under Healthy Critters Radio. Be sure to visit all the great shows on Horse Radio Network at HorseRadioNetwork.com. Love your dog. Hug your horse. Feed your chickens. Clean your litter box. Dance with your goat. Slither with your snakes. Howl at the moon. Hang with your hamster. Party with your parrot. Waddle with your walrus. Outwit your otter. Cuddle your cows. Rap with your raptor. Go chipping with your chipmunks. Forgive your fox. While hedging your hog. We also recommend that you rack with your raccoon. Gyrate with your giraffe. Meditate with a meerkat. Uber with your orangutan. Facebook with your flamingo. Ponder with your panda. Walk with your wookie. Yawn with your yak. Twitter with your toucan. Go raining with your reindeer. Dropbox your dragon. (laughs) 